Well, happy Mother's Day, everyone. Well, to the mothers uh, among us, that, that is. It's not to acknowledge the fact that, you know, dads had some role in that, but. Um, <clears throat> let's pray. Father, we are very thankful to be able to celebrate not only uh, the gift of, of motherhood, but also, Lord God, the gift of children. And so we continue to ask your blessing upon those who have presented their children for dedication and themselves also, Lord, in committing to being a parents who will serve Christ and honor Christ and um, communicate and share uh, the, the love of Christ with their, their sons and daughters. We thank you for your word, Lord, which is life, and that in it you have provided everything we need for life and godliness. So now we would ask, Father, that you would speak to us from your word, that we would be encouraged, that we would be challenged, that we, O oh Lord God, would be filled with hope as we seek to follow Christ. And we ask in his name, amen. If you uh, know anything about, uh, if you, last week, if you watched uh, the Kentucky Derby, uh, you know that we have now come to ch uh, chapter 5 of 1 Peter, so we have rounded the clubhouse turn. But well, we are not yet in the stretch, um, but we are, we're there. Uh, if, if this could be compared to a car ride, we are about an hour from home. Uh, and, but we will get there. And uh, in preparing for this, uh, be aware that we're going to break this up into two parts. So we're going to do one, verses 1 to 5 today and the verses 6 to 11 um, next week. So uh, I, I want to just sort of give you that sense of relief because I know... Um, much to my uh, dismay, I am a bit long-winded with regard to these things, so I want you to at least be assured of that. Uh, several years ago, as in looking for this text, and several years ago I watched uh, a documentary about uh, the U.S. Naval Submarine School. Uh, in one segment, future submariners take part in a training exercise to t designed to teach them how to stop a compartment within, particularly the engine compartment in the submarine from flooding. They had received classroom training as to how to do this, but now came the time for them to be placed in what was called a damage control wet chamber, which was, a, as you can imagine, a very tight, narrow compartment designed to simulate what it would be like in a submarine. And once all of the, the trainees were gathered in this, about eight or nine of them, the training officer went up to a little control booth, looked at the chief officer there and said, okay, chief, let him have it. And suddenly, water at the rate of about 700 gallons a minute began flooding that chamber from every conceivable fitting, pipe, and joint. And these trainees had to rely upon their training. They couldn't panic. They had to work together as a team, each one focusing on their specific job in order to stop the flooding. If they could do that, they would save the sub, they would save their crewmates, and then they would also ultimately save themselves. I think about that documentary in relation to this text because just as the Navy trains submariners to deal with a variety of dangerous situations and how to manage and can, uh, take care of themselves in crisis situations, God does the same thing for his church and for individual believers. He leads us through fiery trials 
for the very purpose of teaching us and training us how to deal with these situations in a way that not only honors Christ, but then honors one another as well and bears witness to the world that we have indeed taken into heart the very things that God is teaching us. And so this being the case, when Peter writes these final instructions here in chapter 5, he is thinking about one thing, I would say, and that is whatever happens, do your job. Whatever happens, keep practicing what Jesus preaches. And whatever happens, continue entrusting your life to a faithful God while continuing to do good. Whatever happens, stay focused on what needs to be done today and leave tomorrow in his hands. Whatever happens, in other words, one of Peter's favorite commands, whatever happens, be sober-minded, be self-controlled, and above all, keep loving one another. Whatever happens, he says, do your job. Do what God has prepared and is training you to do. Rely on the things that he has shown you from his word and has shown you about his own character. So with that in mind, Peter turns his attention after giving instructions earlier in the letter to slaves, to wives, to husbands. Now he gets even more specific as he addresses the church leadership and the other members in it. So he instructs the elders to do their job and fulfill their calling by shepherding the flock that is under their care. He tells those who are younger to be subject to the elders. And to everyone else, elders and younger members included, he says, clothe yourselves with humility. Cast all your anxieties upon God because he cares for you. Be on guard against the devil and his schemes. And finally, trust God to keep his promise to reward those who are faithful in following him to the very end. And as I said, this is a, a big text. We've got a lot of verses, so we're going to break it up into two parts. So this week, we're going to look at verses 1 to 5. Elders, fulfill your calling by shepherding the church under your care. He writes, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder, a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. But just a little background, we know that the word elders is often used in the New Testament to re refer to those who have leadership positions in the church. It's, a, it's an office of leadership. And most scholars believe that the term itself was borrowed from the Old Testament and part of the Jewish tradition. We know that the book of Acts, Luke tells us that he frequently mentions elders as having a leadership role in the church. And outside the book of Acts, Elders are mentioned in the letters of Paul, as well as Peter and James. And since the term is always in the plural, it's very likely that churches were led by a plurality of elders and not just a single elder. For example, in Acts 14.23, the Bible says that after Paul and Barnabas had planted churches in Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, 
uh, they appointed elders for them in every church. So that's the background. Peter is addressing a plurality of leadership. We don't know how old these men are. We don't know if they're younger or older, but they have been appointed. They have been chosen. They have been, um, if you will, approved by their congregation to serve as elders. And what is noteworthy here about Peter's address and his appeal to them is that instead of exhorting the elders to do their job as an apostle, which he had every right to do, he appeals to them, he exhorts them as a fellow elder. His humility here is sincere. He's not putting on a show. This is not a false humility. It's very sincere. And that only seems to enhance his authority as an apostle, because he is referring to himself as a former elder. What he is doing is he is elevating the elders that he's addressing to his level. He is talking to them brother to brother. He could command them as an apostle, but rather he appeals to them as a fellow elder and a fellow brother in Christ. And he further strengthens this appeal by referring to himself as a witness of the sufferings of Christ. Now, now, some of you, and some have augured as well, may be thinking, well, you know, Peter wasn't really there at the crucifixion. He didn't really witness the, the sufferings of Christ there. But because, Jesus, because Peter followed Jesus throughout his ministry, he did see Jesus suffer at the hands of the, the Pharisees and the other religious officials. He heard the insults that were hurled at Jesus. He was there when those epithets were thrown like darts at the character of Christ. Also remember, Peter was there in Gethsemane when Jesus was arrested. He was there at the empty tomb at the resurrection. He was also in the upper room when Jesus appears to the disciples on the day of resurrection. And, G and Peter also is the one who on the day of Pentecost speaks about the sufferings of Christ. He makes that bold declaration in that Pentecost sermon, this Jesus whom you have crucified, God has made both Lord and Christ. So Peter has some street cred here when he says these things. Then he lastly, he identifies himself as a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed. He's simply talking about the, the second coming of Christ, that he is going to have a fellowship in that just as these elders are. So he is setting, he's laying down a pattern, if you will. Elders be prepared to participate in the sufferings of Christ. Elders be prepared to be a witness to that suffering through the proclamation of the gospel, through sharing your own life and in teaching, instructing, and training. And also be aware that because you are in the kingdom, not because you're an elder, but because you are following Christ, you will have a share in the glory that is to be revealed when Christ comes back. But until Christ comes back, Peter says, do your job. Shepherd the flock of God among you, he says. They are responsible, our elders, for the care and feeding, nurture and training, discipleship and mentoring, correcting and instructing God's most precious resource, which is his people. The church by the same token, is God's flock. It does not belong to the elders. We are stewards, if anything. We are servants. We are under-shepherds of the great shepherd who is the Lord Jesus Christ. You can hear echoes in Peter's words of Jesus' command 
to Peter at the end of John's gospel. If you remember there, Peter is on the shore. He's swum ashore after you know, seeing Jesus. Jesus has some fish ready for them to eat. And afterwards, he pulls Peter aside and he, he asks him, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, I do. And he says, feed my sheep. He asks him again, do you love me? Peter says, I do. He says, tend my lambs. Then a third time, Peter, do you love me more than these? And Peter, at that point, having denied Jesus three times, is now asked a third time, do you love me? He says, Lord, you know all things. You know I love you. And then Jesus says, feed my sheep. So Peter is speaking as one who has been humbled, but now has also been authorized to command and to instruct and to teach other elders fellow elders, to shepherd the flock, to pastor the flock that is under their care, that they have been assigned to care for. This is not an assignment that elders take unto themselves, but it is one that God directs and appoints them to. That is going to be, as we'll see, a true indication of someone who is called to lead as an elder and someone who is not. Because it is the, these are things that are assigned to us we don't grab at them and hold on to them. Martin Luther says, and Paul would agree with this, that an elder's primary responsibility in pastoring God's flock is to preach the gospel, is to tell them over and over again about the glorious character, nature, love, mercy, and plan that God has for his church, his people, and his world. And so by telling people who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, by explaining in clearest terms possible what God intends for humanity is the primary function of the elder. But they're also to provide other forms of pastoral care. They provide, they exercise oversight, says Peter, through many forms of pastoral care. Prayer and counseling, discipling and correcting, ministering to the sick, managing the church's finances and resources, and if necessary, protecting the integrity of the church through the appropriate use of church discipline. Now, it seems rather self-serving, or it may sound rather self-serving, for an elder to be preaching about elders. But this is not self-serving. I feel convicted when I read these things. I, I feel the weight of the responsibility, James is not kidding when he says, let not many of you become teachers lest you incur a stricter judgment. I am proud in, in the biblical sense and happy and humbled and honored to serve with elders who far exceed my ability to provide the kind of pastoral care that Peter talks about here. I know that my area of gifting lies primarily in preaching. But there are other areas of pastoral care in which I do not do well. And so I am grateful that in a plurality, there are elders among us, Pastor Justin, Pastor John, and Pastor Eric, who provide a level of pastoral care and shepherding that supplements the particular gift that God has given to me in preaching and in teaching the Word. And that's the way it should be. We have our elders, when we meet, there are times when we pray and, and exclusively pray. We don't discuss, quote-unquote, business, but we discuss how we can best care for 
many of our people, our members, and even our non-members who need prayer, who need counseling, who need financial support, who need correcting, who need discipling. And you know who they are. You have experienced far more than in the time that I've been here the kinds of ministry and blessings that our elders here provide and will continue to provide long after I am gone. At the same time, Peter knows the challenges and temptations of leadership, and so he spends the rest of verses 2 and 3 telling elders they, they must lead, they must serve for the right reasons and with the right attitude. Not under compulsion, he says, but willingly, as God would have you. You are aware, Paul says in 2 Corinthians that God loves a cheerful giver. Well, God also loves a cheerful elder, especially if that elder is called by him to lead a church. Elders who serve because they are pressured to serve, well, quite frankly, they make lousy elders. And the church suffers as a result of that. So elders aren't to serve because someone has twisted their arm thinking, hey, I think you've got a particular skill, you should do this, but they don't really sense in their heart and in their mind a peace and a leading from the Spirit. They ought not to serve, but they should do so willingly, eagerly, Peter will say at one point. And I'm also glad and happy and proud to say that we have a current leadership team who are serving willingly and joyfully and happily despite the difficulties and challenges there. And then he says they are, to, they are not to serve for shameful gain, but eagerly. They're called to be shepherds, our elders, not celebrities. We are called to attract people to Jesus, not to ourselves. And so elders who serve eagerly are not in ministry for the money or the fame, or the notoriety. Our happiness, truly, our happiness comes from seeing men and women, boys and girls, young men and young women, learning how to glorify God and to serve Him. That's our responsibility. And as much as it's as a parent's responsibility to train up their children in the, in the admonition and fear of God, we as elders bear that responsibility of teaching and training and encouraging. We're not after market share. We're not trying to trademark a brand. And elders who serve eagerly aren't out to fleece God's sheep. We are called to feed them, to care for them, to tend to them, and if necessary, die for them. And then lastly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. In 1 Timothy 3, 1 Timothy 3, Paul says that if a man aspires to the office of elder, he desires a noble task. But be aware that not everyone who aspires to be an elder is qualified to be an elder. Commenting on this verse, Scott McKnight writes as follows, that if loving money is a root of all kinds of evil, loving power is the earth in which it grows and the moisture that feeds it. 
Some church leaders serve because of the sense of power. Others serve because they are called by God to serve, and still others do so because of the impact their lives make on others. The second and third motivations are godly. The first is despicable. And it is. Because when an elder serves out of a desire to dominate, he will dictate, he will coerce, and he will otherwise intimidate those around him. In short, he's a bully. He will use his authority not only to gain control, but to exert and maintain that control at any cost and by any means possible. Such a man is not qualified to be an elder. However, the elder who does nothing from selfish ambition, but as Paul says, in humility counts others as more significant than himself, who sets an example for others to follow, who is qualified, that's the one who's qualified. That's the one who sets an example. Think about it. Think about the leaders. Think about the pastors whom you admire and respect. Not the ones that you podcast with or the ones that you watch videos of, but the ones that have served here. The ones that have had the most impact on your lives, maybe in this church or even in the church where you grew up. The pastors that had the most positive influence on you were those who set an example of what Christ-likeness is. Pastors who were, in the best sense of the word, the most Jesus-y people that you knew because they strived to help you see Christ in all of his glory, in all of his beauty, in all of his justice, and in all of his righteousness. They were more than willing to serve. They were more than willing to take the second place so that you could ascend. That's the kind of elder that you need to have leading, guiding, and pastoring you, says Peter. Elders, as one scholar says, are not to go into the ministry so that they can boss others around, but so that they can exemplify the very character of Christ. And because I think Peter lays out, I mean, you know, you have seen the reports, you've been on the internet, you have seen where there have been incidences of pastors who have abused their authority. That's a stain on the church, and it ought not to be. Thankfully, that is not the case. It will not be the case here. The command that elders lead lives worthy of imitation tells us that this is a major requirement for being an elder. At the same time, it tells those who are responsible for selecting elders, and this is the pastoral search committee doing its role now, Academic achievement, administrative skills, or even being a dynamic speaker or a compelling storyteller, those are not automatic qualifications for serving as an elder. They may serve elsewhere in other kinds of leadership positions, but not necessarily in the church. And then Peter knows also the sacrifices that elders will make. I'm often reminded in my more frustrated moments in ministry, not here, but elsewhere, if you have ever watched the movie Field of Dreams, at the end of that movie, after Ray Kinsella has plowed under a field of corn and built a baseball field, one of the guys that he goes to get, this, this writer, 
Terrence Mann gets to go into the cornfield with the baseball players, and Ray wants to know, how come he doesn't get to go? And he goes on this long rant, this whine, and, and he says, never, never once in all of this did I ever ask what's in it for me. And then finally they say, Ray, what are you saying? I'm saying, what's in it for me? There are times when, as an elder, when you're dealing, believe me, when you're dealing with obstinate people, when you're dealing with sheep, when you're dealing with your own pride and stupidity, you bang your head against the wall and say, why am I doing this? Peter says, because you will receive an unfading crown of glory. That's why. Because you've been called to this. God has placed his hand on you. And God forbid you do anything else. That's why you do it. I had a professor in seminary, Gordon Fee, who in his regular speaking voice was about this level of baritone. But when he got really excited, his voice would go up here. And he would level us with sermons from 1 Corinthians. And he'd say, may the wrath of God be upon you. And we felt as if the wrath of God had to come upon us at that moment. So in terms of complaining, in terms of whining, Peter says, put that all of aside, all aside, because you will receive an unfading crown of glory. It's not as if elders get a special prize. We all get an unfading crown of glory. This is a sense of humility. You're doing this, says Peter, because God has called you to it. But Here's an interesting thing about the gospel. And here's an interesting thing about Peter's letter. This letter would be read out loud. And every husband in that church would hear these qualifications read. Because what you say about elders, you can say about husbands. Husbands in learning how to love their wives in an understanding manner, must do so not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Think about a husband who feels compulsion to love his wife. Well, honey, I'm only getting you these flowers because, by golly, that's what a good husband does. I'm only putting bread on the table because I have to. That's not love. By the same token, a husband does not love or serve his family for shameful gain. It's not about him. It's not about his manhood, but it's about what he can impart to his family by caring for them, by shepherding them, by tending to them. And lastly, a husband, like a good elder, is not a bully. He doesn't dominate his wife. He doesn't dominate his family. What he does do, which sets us up for the next round of instruction, is he creates an environment that makes it desirable for people to live in subjection to his authority. Because that's why Peter says this. When the chief shepherd appears, he says, and you have to give an account of your leadership as an elder, how will that account go, says Peter? Have you, have you led eagerly, willingly, humbly, setting an example? Knowing that that day is coming should, should govern how we lead our churches, and how we lead our homes and behave in our marriages. Young people, Peter says, must continue to subject themselves to the elders. Because good elders, like a good husband, 
create an environment where there is a willingness to trust. Likewise, he says, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. So Peter turns his, his attention to the younger members of the church. Because this is a church, remember, a congregation that's under pressure. They're feeling the heat of persecution. And so some of the younger ones, we don't know, again, how old these elders are. Some may be the same age as the younger members of the church. Some may be... <clears throat> Older. And younger people, I, I mean, believe it or not, I was at one time, I had dark hair, I had a beard, oh, I had a beard. <laughs> and I had, Kenny Loggins had nothing on me, if you know who that is. Anyway, I remember being a younger man and thinking, these old guys, they have no idea. Boy, if I were in charge, I'd do it this way. Or what's, what's keeping them so long? Let's hurry up. Let's get something done. So young people tend to get impatient. They have a lot of zeal, but not a lot of wisdom. Older people have wisdom, but their zeal is not as sharp or as keen as it used to be. And it's, that difference is captured in this quote that I came across the other day, where it says that the error of youth is to believe that intelligence is a substitute for experience. Well, the era of age is to believe that experience is a substitute for intelligence. So it's because the young tend to have more zeal than wisdom. Peter says, you need to temper yourselves. You need to control yourselves. You need to trust those who are in leadership. And again, by way of overhearing, Peter is telling the elders, make sure you create an environment, a culture that encourages the younger members to trust your leadership, to aspire to it, to imitate it because you're setting them an example. At the same time, Peter is not commanding the younger members to a blind obedience. To be subject is not to be subservient. He's not advocating for a thoughtless compliance so that if the elders begin to teach or instruct in doctrines and in things that go against the gospel or against God's moral order, push back by all means. Nor is Peter suggesting that the elders are exempt from accountability before the congregation. He's already warned them about that. A good way to understand the word be subject here is it's living in agreement with the leadership of the elders. Elders are to exercise leadership, and those who are younger should be willing to follow and to be subject to the elders, neither grumbling nor complaining about the quality of their leadership, especially during times of persecution. So, elders, do your job by fulfilling your calling, shepherd the church. Younger members, do your job by being subject to the elders. And then lastly, everyone, elders and younger members included, do your job by learning to clothe yourselves with humility. For God, he says, opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. It's a fundamental rule. Everybody should know it. Church unity depends on every member clothing themselves with humility. When you come right down to it in a figurative way, we all wear the same uniform. It would be very strange if you went to your favorite team's sports game, you know, went to the Knicks game or the Mets game, and, and all the Mets are wearing different uniforms. One guy's wearing a road uniform, another guy's wearing a uniform from Colorado Rockies. He said, wait a minute, what's going on here? No, you wear, you wear the same uniform because you're on the same team. 
That's a sign of humility to put on Christ. Paul says that in Colossians 3, 12 to 14. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. We can do that, right? Now comes the hard part. Bearing with one another. <laughs> and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Who exemplifies this? The elders, which is then picked up by the younger members, which then spins around and begins to take root in the church itself. Because it's been said that humility is the oil that allows relationships in the church to run smoothly and lovingly. And so the more we see ourselves as sinners saved by grace, the less likely we are to be unkind, impatient, and grumbling against anyone else. Let's face it, pride, pride blinds us to our faults. Puts that log in our eye, but boy, we can see the speck. Humility says, I got a log in my eye. I have to deal with this. I have to make sure that I am right before God before I dare say anything about my brother or sister. And it's because pride kills unity that Peter quotes from Proverbs 3.24. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Believers should obey the command to humble themselves because God sets his face against them. But he lavishes his grace on those who are humble. Biblical examples of this. King Saul sins, doesn't humble himself, but hardens his heart. And God opposes him by taking the throne from him and giving it to David. Rehoboam, Solomon's heir, sins, young man, refuses to listen to the wisdom of his elders and instead follows the advice and counsel of his young friends. And God opposes him by causing civil war, which divides the nation into two. On the positive side, King David sins. He's confronted by Nathan about his adultery with Bathsheba. David's immediate response is to say, I have sinned against the Lord, humbles himself, and God forgives him and extends to him grace. Peter sins by denying Jesus three times. And when Jesus restores him, asking him three times, do you love me? He received grace. And so if we think humbling ourselves costs us, it does. But it's better to pay him now than to pay him later. It's better to humble ourselves and to receive his grace and mercy now than to face his judgment and justice later on. So when a church is under the gun, says Peter, when the, when the water is flowing into the compartment at a rate of 700 gallons a minute, everyone must do their job. Elders care for the church. Younger members be subject to the elders, and everyone clothe themselves in humility because we have one job, one task, which is to make much of Jesus. I mentioned at the start of this that we've, we've sort of rounded the clubhouse turn or we're in the last hour of a long drive or a long ride. I don't know about you, but having lived in places where a family of five has to drive many hours to see family and friends, I'm talking many hours. 
in a contained vehicle with three children, each of whom has a backpack stuffed with coloring books, toys, snacks, and various and assorted drinks, who all within 15 minutes have consumed everything in them. And that last hour of a 15-hour car ride, and the parents are bleary-eyed, and the children are firefighting in the back seat, and the complaining is rife and bitter. The only good thing about that long car ride at that moment is knowing, oh, thank God, it's going to end. Sometimes following Jesus and being part of his church is like being on that long, long car ride. And it's seemingly an unending ride. Hang in there, says Peter, hang in there. Eventually the ride will be over. Eventually we will see Jesus and we will receive our inheritance until that day. Do your job. Elders, care for the flock under our care. Younger members, be subject to the elders and everyone else, all of us. Let us humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God that he will exalt us at the proper time. You think about that, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we give you thanks that you equip us to do the things that you have called us to do. These are difficult things, but they are things that your own Son has done and has set us an example how to do them. So let us be faithful. Let us be humble. Let us, O Lord God, be loyal unto the end. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.